Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. OFS has published its first Equality of Opportunity Risk Register for English AG, but are there some big risks missing? UCAS says we'll soon have a million applicants. We'll work out what that means. Wales is working towards better mental health. And Turnitin is turning on AI detection, but plenty of people want to turn it off. It's all coming up. These 18-year-olds, even if they don't go to university, they still have to live somewhere, okay, right? So, like, they live in university halls, maybe, or, you know, they live at home, but, like, There's a broader issue here about how we're going to house people beyond higher education because they need somewhere to live. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and joining me, crawling our way to the Easter break, as usual, three beat-em-offs of HE policy. Uh, in High Hoban, James Purnell is Vice-Chancellor at the University of the Arts London. James, your highlight of the week, please. I think, honestly, it's going to be getting to the end of the week because I'm, I'm on holiday from tomorrow. But um, uh, maybe more professionally, it was taking our, our online approach to our court this week and hearing uh, my DVC education and my Chief Digital Officer finishing each other's sentences. And if you're going to do a big online thing, uh, as I learned to the BBC, you'd have to have both sides working in partnership. And it was, yeah, it was lovely. Excellent stuff. And in Colchester this morning, Anne-Marie Canning is CEO at the Brilliant Club. Anne-Marie, your highlight of the week, please. I'm glad we're all acknowledging we've had rough weeks. I've also had a rough week, but my highlight was seeing that Mablethorpe Primary School, shout out to Mablethorpe Primary School, uh, went on their launch trip for the Scholars Programme to Cambridge University and just seeing all these primary school kids from uh, Mablethorpe in Cambridge, it made my heart sing. Fantastic stuff. And in Faversham this morning, David Kernahan is Deputy Editor at Wonky. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Um, again, going with the consensus, it's been a rough week and I'm glad to be coming to the end of the week. And that's it. That's the highlight. Well, there we go. Yes. So we start this week with the Eeyore. OFS has published new arrangements for access and participation. And DK, it's a risky business. It is indeed. So this is yet another revamp of the access and participation planning regime from the Office to Students. It does feel like we've been doing it every month. In actual fact, this is um, what feels like a permanent and long-lasting change that Uh, puts access and participation planning back into the realms of the predictable as opposed to the realms of we might need to change this next year. So, as you say, Jim, this is um, a um, a, a risk-led approach to um, assessing the equality of the opportunity. The Office of Students and John Blake have come up with 12 national risks to equality of opportunity is defining these as instances where somebody is prevented from getting the um, full benefit of higher education from um, circumstances that are beyond their control. The idea is that providers need to take these into account when they're developing the revised access and participation plans. 
If that's just made you sit up in your seat, it's okay. You don't need to develop a new plan right now. There's going to be a small pilot cohort are going to be um, are developing plans. So there's um, a pilot group of uh, providers, as has been mentioned by my uh, colleague in previous statements to the House. We'll start the process in the summer, and everybody else is going to start rewriting their plan in 2024. These are going to last for four years. They're not going to change them again for those four years. They're going to stay the same, although you can vary them if you would like to. So this puts the idea of access and participation onto a risk-based approach. It's a, um, a move back from the tick box, are you addressing the, um, these issues, no, yes, kind of thing that we've seen previously. And we are interested to see a refreshed access and participation dashboard. That's all the data that underpins um, the development of the risk register. Uh, it now includes information on completion. We can see from that that for the most recent cohort available, which is, of course, the 2017-18 cohort, uh, just 81.6% of students from the most deprived backgrounds that I believe is ABC's Quintel 1 actually completed their course, which suggests in terms of access and participation, there is still a lot of work to do. Interesting stuff. Now, James, you, you, you know, you will recall, I think, um, the, the kind of origins of this, which which originally were re really all about take some of your extra fee income and chuck it at low-income students. And, and, and then we had kind of one-year plans, and now there are these four-year plans. But in a really volatile and uncertain world... Do, do, do kind of four-year plans kind of really work as 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 a as a way of doing access and participation? I, I rather like this. I think it's um it, it, it's evidence-based and it allows us to prioritise. I think it's got to be at least four years so that you can get the get some kind of evidence. I, I think there's some questions about how much evidence you'll be able to get in that first four-year period, given the interventions. You know, will often start in. Uh, in secondary school, but but I think this is a an approach that allows us to focus. Um, uh, I think there's some questions. I suppose in particular when I look at the, you know, I'm new into the sector. It feels like the plans were very holistic and very ambitious last time, whereas I think this time we would like to do something which where we are we focus and we know the really important things to change and set some achievable targets. But then there's more accountability for delivery against those targets at, at the moment. The, the accountability seems to be nearly entirely around the sign-off of the plans. Um, there's also a punchy, um, typical John Blake article as part of the press release where he's sort of saying that we shouldn't be complacent about uh, or tolerate um, students from poorer backgrounds not having the same kind of continuation levels, which I think is a good challenge. It does really raise the cost of living crisis and the fact that students haven't got any more uh, support, really, if we're uh, uh, from the from the government. And I think across the sector, we're starting to see that that's starting to impact on continuation across the board, you'd imagine, particularly for poorer, poorer students. And so if we're going to really focus on continuation, we've got to focus on that. We've got to have a better approach to cost of living right now. And we've got to look at reforming the system and bringing back grants and making it more generous in the future. Yes. But I mean, that, that's a really interesting question, isn't it, Anne-Marie? You know, should, should a provider, when pl making a kind of four-year plan, it, should a provider be assuming that there'll be a Labour government? Should a, should a provider assume that said Labour government will, will increase maintenance loans? I mean, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big component here, isn't there, that, that kind of impacts 
a provider's ability to hit whatever targets it sets that that is kind of somewhere else but needs predicting yeah i mean we know the, there's lots of potential scenarios over the next few years in terms of you know different labor government um different government labor conservative wh- whoever it might be but also that we might see some changes to how the higher education system is funded and viewed and developed um I mean, I mean, for me, if you're an institution, you know, the access and participation plan is your regulatory submission. Actually, aside from that, you should have an institutional articulation of what you want to do around access and participation that stands independent of what government says. Um, you know, th- this is a- about way more than, you know, the the regulatory requirement and the the risk register. It's about, you know, what you stand for as an institution. So for me, if I was still in a higher education, I'd be putting myself at a higher education institution. I'd be putting myself up as one of the tributes in the first tranche and uh, really getting ahead of the curve. Um, I think the four-year time frame is pretty decent. I'm really pleased there's a bit of flex in there and the um, opportunity to sort of revise the plans. You know, school improvement plans work on a, a one-year basis. So it's always interesting comparing the two sectors between schools and HEIs. So it's great to have a longer time frame. I'm, I'm really pleased there's that flexibility to respond to what's going on in the broader education system. Um, I think the APPs, you know, we that we, we're currently working in, they haven't aged well during the COVID years. Um, and so it's really nice to see that built into the regulatory environment. Um, I was at the event launching this yesterday, actually. Um and I think, you know, the risk register is a real tie in together of that OFS sort of dual priority around uh, access and standards. So, you know, you've got buckets of, of different risks into access, lots are in outcomes uh, and then and then just one um, in progression. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yes, DK. I mean, you know, the, 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 the risk register, we, we'd sort of read about it and we'd heard John Blake go on about it quite a bit. But actually kind of seeing it is really interesting, isn't it? What are your reflections on? on whether it kind of works as a, as, as a kind of overall sort of you know, approach? Well, I mean, I'm old school on my risk um, registers. I like to think alongside the risk itself, I like to think about the likelihood of the risk, the severity of the risk and the mitigations. So although we get the 12 national risks, uh, an example might be students may not have an equal opportunity to access a sufficiently wide variety of higher edu- education uh, course types. Alongside that, we get an unordered list of groups of students, groups of students with particular characteristics that might be more likely to be subject to that risk than other students. What we don't get is any calculus on how much more likely, which is slightly frustrating as we know the data is in there and we can um, and we can get to it through the various OFS uh, dashboards. Uh, the risks overall, they seem sensible. They seem like where they should be. There's no big surprises as any in any of the groups if you are an estranged student or a care leaver you're probably going to be subject to quite a lot of these risks if you are your traditional white male 18-year-old with three good A-levels from a good school. You might not be subject to any of these risks um, in aggregate. Um, Of course, the other problem with this is we are still thinking in aggregate. Um, It's not really, we're not at the wall where the Social Mobility Commission might like to see uh, the idea of dealing with the individual student and, and their individual circumstances. There does need to be um, a trade-off. We obviously can't 
um, deal with every single individual student individually. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the staff. We don't have the um, the reams of personal data that we might need to be able to do that. But as it stands, we've got 12 decent risks here. And I think that's a good starting point for the planning that will follow. Um, I, I agree uh, all, all of that. I think we can do some of that at the institutional level, the more bespoke stuff that you're talking about, DK. And I, I completely agree with Anne-Marie that institutions, you know, you take the regulation, but then you put your plan forward and hold yourself accountable. But I think if we're going to try and argue for more funding over the next few years, we, we need to be able to show that this is sticking across the whole sector. And so it is just down to institutions sort of uh, talking about how, how they've performed. I'm not sure we will get to where we want to get to or have confidence that we're going to get there from, from our stakeholders. Yes, and, and, and as well as that kind of across-the-sector thing, James. So, you know, I mean, one of the things that John Blake talks about is this idea of kind of, um, you know, deleting the cheat codes where it, this kind of stuff actually kind of runs through the DNA of a university. And, you know, I mean, there are clearly some universities where um, senior managers think their job is to kind of protect their academics from OFS rather than, you know, kind of embed some of the principles. But, I mean... And how does this kind of work? You know, is is uh, are you intending that you know if John Blake rocked up one morning to Chelsea College of Arts, then you know the academics that are knocking around that building would be kind of living and breathing their bit of the APP? Is that you know? I mean, how do you do it in a large institution like yours? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, we, we sort of focus on the targets which where we feel we're furthest behind, and we put them in our call it institution wide targets. And then there's some fairly specific things that you can do around putting flags around particular students when they're coming in to, uh, to apply, um, although there's some limits on, on that. Uh, we are working with contextual admissions, but I think we are, we've had a, a bit of a voluntary approach. I think we're now going to go to a bit more of a mandated uh, one. And then with the, the awarding gaps or attainment gaps, um, we worked through those at course level and we had made some quite good progress on that, but we've, we've now stalled. So we've put in place a kind of plan for the next three years where we're, we're going to do a bit of a mini John Blake, which is go and look at the evidence of what's working and what's not so that we can maybe without his um, chutzpah and uh, rhetorical verve, but uh, go and uh, 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 look at what's working, what's not and stop what's not working and um, systematize what is. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Now, Anne-Marie, one other question. Um, obviously, the, the dashboards have come out this week. And, you know, in, in reality, in a lot of areas, you know, some of the kind of gaps um, uh, have, have, have got worse. You know, some of the progress has gone into reverse on, on all sorts of aspects of both getting in and getting on. And it, when, when we kind of spoke to John Blake the day before the launch, he was saying... You know, I mean, clearly egregious missing of the previous targets, the kind of Chris Millwood targets would, would result in, in the usual OFS-style interventions. But, you know, long protracted conversations with every provider about whether it was the pandemic and the cost of living crisis or not wouldn't be productive. What What's your sense of whether or not people really should be still be having their feet held to the fire on, on the old plans? Because, you know, if, if not, then it's like Bobby Ewing in the shell. We just forget the last four or five years, don't we? Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, whenever you've got a strategy, and essentially that's what an access and participation plan is, right? It's an institutional strategy about um, how you're going to help students from um, different backgrounds. I think it's really important to round that off and measure yourself um, against what you set out to do, uh, regardless of what the headwinds were from COVID or 
um, you know, other factors. So I do think it's important that we have that um, process of concluding the current access and participation plans, not least because there's valuable learning in terms of what, what we do next with these new APPs. There is a distinct shift, though, right, from those Chris Millwood targets. And, you know, yesterday, um, Robert Halfham was saying, you know, we want to move away from previous static targets. And um, John Blake was saying we will we will take providers at their words. So we're seeing a, a sort of maturation, I think, of the relationship between APPs and universities and, and the regulator. I, I tell you what, I am really pleased to see back in the mix, though, and I've said this for years, the consultation document and the analysis of consultation responses I really do recommend folks have a look at it because it gives you a good sense of where the sector is in terms of the APP um, plans. I'm really pleased that um, it's gone back in that institutions will need to um, clearly state their um, cash investment into this area of work um, because we know one of the things in the last round of APPs was you know COVID hit, funds were repurposed. It's really important that the resources line up in terms of the scale of the challenge for some of those groups that you, you mentioned, Jim. And the other thing that's really fantastic in terms of the consultation is, you know, I think OFS have clearly listened and you can get that. They've changed some of their plans um, on APPs. I was super pleased to see around the evaluation piece and support for publishing both things that are positive uh, in terms of outcomes and the learning that, you know, this didn't work or this hasn't had an impact or even worse than that, this has had a negative impact on students because that, for me, is the watershed moment where we can really start to dial up progress. So I'm really pleased to see cash investment and you know evaluation, no matter how beautiful it is, um, being published. I think those two things are game changers. It's a reminder, this all costs money. We're really happy to see that they've agreed to um, uh, let us cost out the, uh, the cost of doing this, uh, but it does show that this will cost money across the sector. And with a frozen fee, there'll be pressure on all of these budgets. So if we can show that it's sticking across the sector, there's evidence of why it's working, that will help make the case for uh, investment in the Just before we move off this DK, there was a line in there that I thought was, I mean, uh, you know, my eyebrow went up. <laughs> um, there's a line in there that says, set out what your investment is going to be. By the way, if you wanted to recruit, we still expect you to spend what you said you were going to spend. And I was thinking... Hello. That 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 sounds that sounds problematic given some of the very wild, significant changes we're seeing to size and shape at the moment. Um, I think this idea comes from a world where the student premium funding existed and was something that we could use to support students that required extra support in terms of academic um, activity, settling in, all the other stuff. At the moment, what used to be the student premium funding has pretty much turned by default into the magic money uh, twig. It's the resources that we are told that uh, providers are allowed to devote entirely to student hardship funds because of the biggest risk of them all, as um, Jim spotted on the site, that the government fails to do anything about um, student, um, about student maintenance um, funding and even more students end up struggling uh, financially. Um, I, I think it's probably too much to hope that an Office for Students plan would have um, an understanding and um, a tackling of that particular risk in it. But I think it's something that's going to be very real for a lot of um, providers that they haven't got the money 
to do the access and participation work as well as they might like and students haven't got the money to support them actually study on on the courses that they've got into good now let's see who's been blogging for us this week hello my name is Jacqueline Baxter from the Open University Business School and today I'm going to be writing about why an identity clash means we often lose good practitioners who come into academia it's a very important topic because um, many universities employ good practitioners to teach on vocational courses such as business, social work, nursing or teaching. But when they come into the profession, there are a number of reasons why they may feel uncomfortable and why their professional identities might not start to form as effectively as they might. This article looks at that and tries to seek a way um, that we can help these practitioners more effectively makes a transition from practice to academia. Now, next up, UCAS has been looking to the future and, uh, Anne-Marie, they're predicting a million. Yes, Jim. So this week, UCAS have released their Journey to a Million publication and, and this is modelling that essentially looks at uh, undergraduate application levels um, across the rest of this decade. Um it assumes that if demand remains and government policy remains favourable, um, that we will hit one million applicants by 2030. Um, actually, we see a demographic dip after that um, and then numbers return to current levels by 2040. So there's a few scenarios in there in their modelling, um, but it's really to start the conversation about how would we respond to this tsunami of demand that is coming over the next few years. I think we're confident we can do, do this. Um, uh, I think we... We need a plan from the government. Uh, in a previous life, I was involved with setting the the fifty percent target uh, when I worked in government, and one of the, the advantages of that was it it started the conversation from there's going to be fifty percent. What does that mean in terms of funding and planning? So I, I think if we could go have that kind of forward uh, plan where government works out overall, uh, you know, with all the stakeholders in the sector. Uh, what needs to be put in place at the macro level to make that happen. I think then universities would need a plan. And I think we need we need bigger universities. You know, I think quality at scale, as um, uh, UCAS are saying in their, their sort of thought pieces, that that's something that can be done, happens all around the world, and we can do here. So we can get more students into uh, our existing universities. We need flexible modes of, uh, of learning, online, low residency. There's something slightly funny about how on the one hand the government likes the LLE on the other hand less keen on online I think if I were them I would say <laughs> on, online should be a really big part of uh, lifelong learning getting people who you know uh, haven't had a chance to learn to come to university so I think that's a big part of it and then we need fairer funding to get more people to be able to uh, to come just as we were discussing just now right yeah there is so much controversy about the Shia physical capacity of the sector to take on these extra students these extra 18 year olds that we know we're going to be there because we can see them in ons uh, projections and the extra international students which if we look at existing trends it seems kind of very unlikely that they're going to stop anytime soon in every other sphere of education we see capacity planning as a part of what central governments um and end up doing um, if there is a baby boom, we need more schools, we build more schools or we set up more free schools or whatever else. Um, at the moment, there's a lot of investment in building up uh, your 16 to 19 uh, provision because that's where the big bump up of 
um, young people in England is we have not seen the systemic investment in the capacity as of the sector as infrastructure. If you think of the sector as kind of a skills infrastructure that of that meets the skills needs of the country and meets the needs of those people who are entering the job market to make sure they've got the skills they need to do what they want to do. Um, if you see higher education, tertiary education as being that infrastructure, um, it is dangerously over capacity. We are going to see, unless we see some change either in the funding model or in the way we think about universities more generally, uh, we are going to see dips in uh, quality because of the fee freeze. We are going to see dips in the student experience because of capacity, because of accommodation, because of uh, the, as I think it's actually yourself, Jim, who keeps saying the lack of places on campus to sit quietly on a Tuesday afternoon and do some work. Um, <laughs> the sector is not um, is not currently big enough to deal with a million applicants a year. Uh, the government needs to make the decision, do we want a million applicants a year? Um, and do we want to deal with the um, political fallout that means properly investing in expansion and resourcing so that they have a good and worthwhile experience? Or do we want to not have... A million applicants a year and deal with the issue that you are artificially restricting the aspirations of young people and the aspirations that families and friends have got for young people. It's a very, very difficult moment and the government, which has not yet shown any signs of making any big decisions as regards higher education to actually make a big decision. I mean, uh, to me, this is... Um, a need for something like um, an expert review or um, a royal commission or something like that. We were at that level. Interesting, interesting. And Marie, I mean, as well as all of this stuff about, you know, the size of the pie and whether you, how, how you should slice it, I'm, I, I, I keep telling people this. I was in Morecambe the other week and I was thinking, you know, I've been in Falmouth a couple of months ago, and I was thinking, if I compare Morecambe and Falmouth, I mean, I know they're at different ends of the country, but obviously one has got a kind of giant university in it that sort of takes over when it's not tourist season and, you know, is, is, is really kind of economically regenerating that area. And then Morecambe looks pretty tired. And, you know, should, should, we, be, should we have an ambition to sort of Radio 1 Roadshow up uh, higher education in the future and take higher education into lots of places that it isn't at the moment? in a big way or should we be thinking about you know the kind of model we've got now only people perhaps coming to campus less or or or, 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 or kind of operating remotely or a bit of both I mean I don't know what's your thoughts yeah I mean as, as James said you know online is one of the options for responding to the demand but the other option is that we deliver higher education in a greater variety of places brilliant example of this is University of Essex delivering in Southend and there are countless other examples. I really do think that model is worth exploring because number one on many towns and new city, uh, shout out Doncaster, wish list is to have a university, right? Um, so there's there's all sorts of benefits here. So, you know, I think DK is right. The, the sort of conversation about the planned expansion in numbers is important because I remember the student number uncapping in, in 2015 and how some of that played out. But I think, you know, James may have more interesting thoughts on this than me, but 
these 18 year olds, even if they don't go to university, they still have to live somewhere. Okay. Right. So like they live in university halls maybe, or, you know, they live at home, but like there's a broader issue here about how we're going to house people beyond higher education because they need somewhere to live. Yes, yes. Where we where we house young adults in general is a massive issue for society exactly. at the moment, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and James, that's never that that is no more true in that's certainly true in London. <laughs> and that's particularly true in, in in London. I mean, it's a pressure, different types of pressures all around the country. But you know, I totally agree with Anne Marie. You know, the way that we solve the housing crisis is by being a prosperous country, and universities help with that. International students help with that. And it's not like young people aren't going to need to live somewhere if they aren't moving to a, yeah. to, to a university. Um, I, I think online having different uh, locations can, can help. But I think DK's suggestion about some kind of commission, some kind of way of trying to build consensus would be absolutely brilliant. Is it going to happen? I don't, I don't know if I hold out a huge amount of hope for that. Um, but the, the good thing about it happening is these things could all be, uh, could all be thought of uh, in the round, because what what we can't do is say we're not going to meet young people's aspirations. You know, one of the striking things in the UCAS uh, work is how much level three attainment has gone has gone up. Would we then suddenly be comfortable saying to generation of students, your predecessors and your successors might be able to get into university, but because of of a population bulge, it's going to be for harder for you? I, I think that's not a message that any of us or any politician should feel comfortable saying. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good. Now, next this week, a Senate committee has a new report out on mental health, James. Yes, Wales's Children, Young People and Education Committee has been conducting a really wide-ranging inquiry, 150 pages into student mental health support, uh, and they've just published their 33 recommendations. Uh, I suppose their central recommendation is that there should be a common framework for mental health uh, across higher education uh, in Wales. Uh, it's got some really good um, specific suggestions. For example, one thing that I think universities struggle with is um, uh, students and their GP registration. Uh, so you know, not being registered where they're at university and therefore it being harder to access mental health services, their, their data not being shared. So they, they float the idea of a single online registration system for, for Wales, which is, which is interesting. Um, I particularly like the fact they remembered international students and their uh, uh, specific uh, and, and similar uh, mental health needs as well. Um, I think Michael on Wonky called it an exemplary review, but he did worry about where the resources were going to come from to fund their ambition. Yes. I mean, look, look DK, I mean, in terms of the report itself, 
You know, I mean, as you know, I'm on the time that education actually never seems to look at student finance. But I mean, I mean, the other thing I was thinking when I was reading this report was education committee never looks at student mental health either. And, and it's not like student mental health has been a big issue for the past four or five years. What, how, how, how is the Welsh parliamentary system getting this right when we don't seem to be able to ever have a proper focus on students or the student experience in, 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 for the English system? Well, on a really practical level, the Welsh parliamentary system was um, designed to offer um, scrutiny and analysis the parliamentary system in Westminster, I think it's fair to say, was uh, um, accreted over a number of years. There are lots of ways in which the devolved parliaments work better as parliaments and as engines of legislation than um, Westminster. But this probably isn't a topic for the wonky podcast. But if you'd like to turn <laughs> into my podcast on parliamentary process, that's coming soon. Um <laughs> In terms of the way in which this is different from England, the um, the uh, committee that released this report have got um, largely their own mind. They can choose to review anything that they fancy doing and make recommendations based on anything they fancy doing. Um, in this case, they're pretty close to the wishes of the minister. They don't have to be. Uh, the spirit of committees in Wales is a lot less. Um, it's a lot less partisan. There's not a sense of oh, you're applied, so you would say that, or you're conservative, you would say that. Um, it's a lot more collaborative. Um, this means, as we see in this report, that they've got the opportunity to think about the larger cross-cutting issues that don't perhaps neatly fit into a departmental purview that aren't strictly speaking an education issue or a community health issue or an issue about the wider way that we live, work and love in um, a modern society. Um, so it's been able to look across uh, the whole gamut of every aspect of the way that the decisions of a government, in which case the Welsh government, um, can affect mental health among young people and students. I think this is strikingly exemplified by my favourite bit of this, the, the, the um, report and the recommendations. The idea is they're going to collect a lot more data. And in order to collect data about something as delicate and personal as student mental health, they need to be really trusting of their regulator. I mean, I mean, both in terms of data protection and in terms of the regulator isn't suddenly going to turn around and penalise them because they've got too many students with mental health problems. If you compare that to the approach in the National Student Survey, the new question on mental health is how well communicated with, with information about your university or college's mental well-being support services, um, which doesn't really tell us anything apart from about the ability of your SU to put uh, posters up in the toilet next to the condom machine. Um, so I think that the idea that the um, Welsh Government Committee are aware there is more data that is, it is useful to collect and is suggesting that the regulator will be able to collect this in a way that is not um, punitive, that is sensitive to student needs and student requirements and can help 
plan a better mental health and mental well-being experience for students is an utterly marvellous thing. It's a great report. I'd strongly recommend you read it. And Marie, it, it, I mean, it does strike me that if the Welsh Government accepts these re recommendations, this is a real step forward in terms of, you know, ending that, at uh, uh, the risk of sounding cliched, ending that kind of postcode lottery of, you know, not knowing that you're at least going to get a minimum level of support in each in each provider. Yeah, I think that's amazing, right? A, a common experience and a, and a promise to students of what they can expect, not just from universities, but also from other sectors like the NHS. And for me, that's the really standout thing about the, the inquiry and also the recommendations that it's taking that cross-sector view. You know, the future is a link up between health and education. And we know those two things can accelerate each other in both very good ways and very, um, very bad ways as well. And so for me, that that's the real highlight of this um, of this report. And um, it does make particular note of the Cardiff um, Mental Health um, University Liaison Scheme, where NHS staff were embedded in universities. You know, schools have been doing this for a wee while, actually, you know, embedding folks like paediatricians into schools. I just think this is ingenious. It's exactly how the systems need to be working together, bridging that gap between, um, you know, the health system and the education system. Um, and so I, 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 sh I echo whatever, you know, whatever else uh, has been said. Um, sorry, I don't know what's just happened there. Um, I echo other people's thoughts that this is, you know, a really holistic report and quite a serious step change in terms of the discussion about the mental health of students, but also what we can do about that to create a better experience for students. So, yeah, a bit of a watershed moment, maybe. James, there's an opportunity here, isn't there? Because, you know, to the extent to which we know that good health uh, means that students are much more likely to succeed, you know, it kind of goes hand in hand with good education. Um, the kind of really simplistic version of this is, you know, someone ought to talk to Wes Streeting about, you know, his interest in education and the fact that he will probably be the education secretary after the next election. But... More broadly, there are there are opportunities here, aren't there, for a kind of integrated approach. Perhaps, I don't know, I mean, certainly in London, that's got to be a prize worth trying to grab. I, I mean, I think this is something where there's political consensus. I think all uh, parties are interested in this, so we should be hopeful. I think there's a similar pilot being tried in Manchester with, uh, I think, Edward Peck and uh, others have been working to get health professionals into universities there. So, so yeah, the there's, there's similar approach has been tried in all the devolved administrations. So I think, yeah, some local leadership would be helpful, not least because, you know, ideally we'd also like to have data sharing with schools. If someone's had a really good package of support going through their school, then having that as something that we could work with before the student comes to us would be would be super helpful. I suppose one different thought is it is great how out in the open this is now. Uh, you know, when I was at university, I, I was off the rails and struggling for a bit and I got some some counselling support. I, I've never dreamed to tell anyone about it. Um, I'm not sure I told my mum about it. So the fact that people are so, you know, whether on buses going around Europe or, you know, just their day-to-day, -day, this has now become something which is completely out of, not completely out in the open because I think there are some some struggles, I think some international students in particular, uh, um, it's more taboo. But we have, you know, it's a, it's a, I think it is genuinely a bigger problem than it was, but I think the solutions are better than they were. The fundamental thing we've got to sort out is the pressure on the NHS. You know, it's, it's really, really hard to get the right uh, support uh, 
to students once it becomes a real uh, a real crisis. And universities have got a big role, but we can't we can't replace what what the uh, health system needs to do. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably not missed the global conversation about generative AI. Universities and students are now part of a massive experiment in artificial intelligence and its integrations across our lives, particularly in education, productivity, research and creativity. Institutions, regulators and governments were caught off guard and are now catching up. Fascinating conversations have opened up inside the sector about the future for assessment, the consequences for teaching and research, the curriculum for running universities and more. So join us on 19th of April for an online event where we'll be delving in to some of these debates and bringing them out into the open to help you and us catch up. And if you don't know your mid-journey from your stable diffusion, then don't worry, this is not an event about the tech, but about how universities think, plan and organise themselves in the era of AI. And if you work in a university, we think you'll find it useful. So, that's the Avalanche is here, online, 19th of April. Book your tickets now at wonky.com slash events. And remember, don't panic. Now, finally this week, Turnitin is releasing a new tool to detect generative AI, but people seem to want to turn it off, DK. Uh, so, uh, chat GPT and similar large language models are a thing, and the sector is losing its collective brilliant mind at... Um, what to do about it. Um, obviously, when we turn to issues of um, academic integrity, examination, working out which students pass and which students fail, this is really important stuff. So we turn to um, technology, obviously, uh, I mean, rather than um, doing any serious thinking about um, assessment. And Turnitin, who um, presented about 20 years ago the solution to academic um, plagiarism that is so effective that there is now no more plagiarism in the entire of the higher education system, has got an equally, uh, um, an equally worthwhile approach to detecting AI um, materials. Uh, the idea is it works um, via the raw power of statistics, so um, large language models work by coming up with the most lightly sequence of words that would answer a question um, based on a deep reading of the entire internet and all kinds of other data sources that we don't actually know about. Um, Turnitin works almost in the same way. It's got a, a large corpus of materials, largely the intellectual property of the students and providers that submitted them as assessed work. Um, and they are also able to spot the most predictable, I guess, answer for each question. So the way this tool works is to say, is this the most predictable answer to the question? If so, it's possible it might be an AI. This works separately to the plagiarism de um, detection scheme. It's a different set of lights that light up. Um, because this is such a new technology, Nobody really knows how it's going to be, um, um, how it's actually going to work in real life yet. But um, a lot of universities have thought, you know, we're not sure about this approach to detection. We're not sure we we actually want this in front of our markers. So they petitioned for and successfully got the ability to turn the indications off. And that's where we are. James, the kind of short-term cheating stuff is what it is. 
But these are really big challenges, aren't they, in terms of kind of, you know, the labour market, purpose of HE, curriculum. You know, there must be some, there must at least be some bits of, you know, Arts London that are, you know, are kind of feeling vaguely nervous at this point. Yes, I think there's a short-term thing, which is if we have said with an essay or piece of work, we expect it to be your own work, then if you plagiarise or use generative AI, then that is is cheating. And we've, we've made that clear. We put out some guidance to that effect. So that, that's the sort of short-term, relatively easy bit of it. Uh, I think the next bit we need to take our time over because it raises some really exciting but also challenging questions, you know, People will be using these technologies in their uh, the, the work that they go on to do after being here. So we need to think about what that means for how we teach. I, I don't think it's a it's a new category of problem. You know, we don't say to people, you can't use animation software, you can't use graphic uh, communication software, you've all got to do it with pencil. But we do make people uh, do it with pencil as well. So we want people to have to have the the options. Um, we do use essays. Actually, quite often there's a perception that in an art school it's mostly going to be, you know, the project and the dress or the uh, sculpture. But, but we very much teach both. It's both the skills, but also the creative thinking, reflecting back on, you know, your process and how it fits into the history of your uh, uh, of your um, uh, subject. And so it's definitely something that, that there's a threat for, for us. But I think in the long term it's going to be much more of an opportunity uh, than a threat. We need to deal with the short-term issues, but then... We need to think about what it's going to mean for our pedagogy and the jobs that people go into and undoubtedly the courses we offer. Anne-Marie, it's funny. I mean, when we were on our, you know, one of our bus tours this year, um, actually when we were in Belgium, we came across a student who um, was actually quite edgy because he'd got an an exam that afternoon and it turned out it was an oral exam and somehow he was able to, uh, you know, his department was able to kind of scale that. Is, is that part of the answer, do you think? You know, this the, 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 that sense that, you know, we might have to start um, doing kind of mini vivas. Yeah, you know, I definitely think, um, you know, oral and spoken examinations could, could be part of the solution. And you're right, schools have been well ahead of the curve. You know, the charity Oracy 21 has been working with um, hundreds of schools across the UK to see Oracy as a key skill alongside, you know, read, reading, writing and arithmetic. And also, you know, that sort of assessment that that student in Brussels is talking about is really common in in, in language degrees, for example. Um, You know, I certainly had that um, in in my degree um, studying a bit of French. But also some universities already um, offer, um, you know, grade composition on things like seminar participation. I have to say, I would have loved that sort of examination. Um, You know, as the sort of student who was getting like 90 plus on my spoken contributions and then you know a sort of middling two one for my essays uh, first if I was lucky so I actually do think that that is a, a sort of healthy rebalancing and potentially part part of the solution to the challenges we've got here so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out just search for the wonky show wherever you get your podcasts and to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to James and Marie, DK, our news editor Michael Salmon, who helps make the show happen. Mark will be here after Easter. Until then, stay wonky.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.